Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on The Argument, how do America's veterans talk about September 11th? Last night in Kabul, the United States ended the longest war in American history. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. It was here, in Afghanistan, where Osama bin Laden established a safe haven for his terrorist organization. It was here, from within these borders, that al-Qaeda launched the attacks that killed nearly 3,000 innocent men, women, and children. We've been there for 19 years, and we've acted as policemen, not soldiers. And if we wanted to be soldiers, it would be over in 10 days, one week to 10 days if we wanted to. I refuse to continue the war that was no longer in the service of the vital national interest of our people. I refuse to open another decade of warfare in Afghanistan. We've been a nation too long at war. If you're 20 years old today, you've never known an America at peace. This week is the 20th anniversary of September 11th. I'm pretty sure you know that by now. It's wild to think that it's been two decades since the only morning of my freshman year of high school I remember absolutely perfectly. Every detail seared into some part of my skull. And it's even more staggering and sobering and sad and awful to come to terms with the almost 20 years of wars that have followed, beginning in October 2001 with the war in Afghanistan. I'm Jane Koston, and what I wanted to do this week is hear from veterans who fought in that war about what 9-11 has meant to them and how it's colored their lives, their service, and their feelings about our country since. So today, we're bringing you a conversation I had with two veterans of Operation Enduring Freedom. That's the official name of the United States Global War on Terror. Michael Washington and Ken Harbaugh are friends. They met years ago through Team Rubicon, an organization that helps veterans serve communities in humanitarian emergencies. Both of them have spent a lot of time thinking about what 9-11 and the 20 years since have meant to their communities. Mike is a former Marine and firefighter who was deployed to the Middle East after 9-11. In 2008, his son, Michael Jr., who was also a Marine, was killed in action in Afghanistan. It ultimately inspired Mike to become a therapist for veterans and first responders. Ken Harbaugh, and before you ask, not related to those Harbaugh's, served as a U.S. Navy pilot from 1996 to 2005 and was in Afghanistan in 2006 with the Human Rights Organization. After leaving the Navy, Ken's worked as an advocate for veterans. A quick content warning. We mentioned suicide in this episode. And we'll provide some resources at the end of the conversation for veterans and anyone else who might be struggling right now. So I want to start with September 11th, 2001. I was a freshman in high school, and I did not realize at the time that the next 20 years of my life would be defined by this thing I was watching on television. There has never been a moment of my adult life that was not post 9-11. So I'd like to ask both of you, 
how long had you been serving in the military at that point? And where were you in that moment, Ken? Let's start with you. So I'd been on active duty for about five years, joined the Navy after college, and became a Navy pilot, and was commanding a combat reconnaissance crew in the Pacific on 9-11. And our aircraft was down for maintenance. And I remember the second plane hitting and realizing with a real sense of dread that we're going to war. Like you, I never imagined the next 20 years would be defined by it. But in the immediate aftermath, we redeployed to the Middle East in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. And everything in the U.S. military shifted that direction. Mike, how about you? I joined the Marine Corps in 1981 and left active duty in 1988 and became a firefighter. And I was in the reserves at the time and a firefighter. And I just got back from Bosnia, a six-month tour in Bosnia that May. And I was getting my kids ready for school. And I remember watching it on Good Morning America or whatever it was that happened to be on background. And the first plane strike, I was like, oh my gosh, that's what a horrible accident. You know, how could that happen? Right. And then as soon as the second one happened, I knew we were going to war with somebody and that I'd be leaving soon. So I took my kids to school thinking about, okay, what's my next step? Started prepping my family for for me to head back out. And a month later, I was in Saudi Arabia doing operations throughout the region. So what was that month like for you from the afternoon of September 11th to the October invasion of Afghanistan? It was background for me as I was figuring out being a teenager. But for both of you, this reshaped where you lived, what you did, and the dangers you faced. Ken? It was frenetic operationally, but I I spent a lot of time thinking about what was happening at home because a lot of people were wondering what was going to happen next. And the DEFCON level changed on every base. Families were worried. I remember telling my crew, check in with your families now because, you know, we're probably not going to be talking to them for a while. And that turned out to be absolutely the case. But in hindsight, an overriding sentiment that I had, and I've talked to buddies of mine since then, was just the sense of unity that we felt, not just those of us in uniform, but but as a country. I contrast that with where we are today and just how much has changed. I mean, it's not the same country today that it was the morning after 9-11. When I left that month from 9-11 to when I was in Saudi Arabia, I got my son spooled up, say, you're you're in charge. He really wasn't, but I needed him to feel that way. Never thought for a moment that he would be serving and ultimately die in Afghanistan. But yeah, I, I had no reservations about going. I don't question as a Marine the bigger picture because I have a small picture of what I'm going to be controlling that that I have to worry about, other Marines to keep alive and a mission to accomplish. What did we go to Afghanistan for? What did you think we were going to do? I, I wish that question had been asked more seriously at the time and in the intervening 20 years. My last active duty assignment was teaching at a military college. And we had this conversation a lot because I knew my students, many of them would be headed downrange. And I got to confess, I was caught up in that desire 
to do something, that righteous anger that we all felt. That said, the writ given the U.S. military and the executive branch by Congress with the authorization of the use of military force was so broad that it all but invited a perpetual war. It gave the executive the authority to to wage war anywhere, anytime with anyone who might be even tangentially connected to those who planned and carried out the attacks. I was 100% on board with holding those responsible for the attacks accountable, tracking them down and putting them out of business. I was partially on board. I was very sympathetic to the idea of exporting democracy. But as a young lieutenant, I didn't yet appreciate the difficulties of that. And it's too easy to say hindsight's twenty twenty because we have so many lessons from history that we could have learned from to teach us that you don't bring democracy at the point of a gun. I want to put the same question to you, Mike. Were you on board with the initial invasions, and what was that mission to you? Oh, absolutely. Um, as a Marine, I consider myself maybe American samurai, where my masters say, this is what we're doing, and I go, and I conduct myself in the best way that I can to fulfill those orders. And so, like Ken, I was totally on board with finding those responsible for attacking our country. And so I, I didn't even think in terms of anything broader than go get these guys. This is what you do. You're a Marine. This is this is how it works. I don't question as a Marine the bigger picture. Was there a moment when you started to question what we were doing in Afghanistan or what America's mission was? Sure. When I had retired from the Marine Corps and was watching this from the sidelines and kind of just going, okay, what are we doing here? You know, there seemed to be no no focus of effort. And I think the administration at the time was just filled with this Pax Americana that we can just come in and we're just going to do it. And they replicated that or tried to in Iraq. We're just going to invade and everybody's going to be happy and don't worry about it. We'll think about it later. So as a civilian, I, when I retired, I, I was watching this intently and I was going, we just don't seem to have direction here. What are we doing? And that's when I started to question. I want to put that same question to you, Ken. When did you start questioning what we were doing there or what the mission was? It was that time in Afghanistan and realizing that Kabul is not Afghanistan. And the vast majority of the policy directed towards Afghanistan was based on our understanding of Kabul. I spent a little time at the embassy in Kabul and at the ISAF headquarters. And the number of people, I got to caveat this by saying there were incredibly brave and well-intentioned folks on the ground, but so many others in critical roles who never left the compound. And that really caused me to doubt the the possibility of long-term success. My most vivid memory from Afghanistan was a conversation with a village elder. This is way outside Kabul, way beyond the reach of the nearest forward operating base and and whatever American influence there was, and having to explain to this gentleman that I wasn't Russian. They had simply lost track of who was occupying them at the moment, and it reminds me of this 
phrase that the fighters in Afghanistan have about the Americans. They like to say that we might have the watches, but they have the time just from their experience of enduring occupier after occupier and coming home and listening to all of the the positivity and the pronouncements and the promises about Afghanistan, they just began to ring hollower and hollower. I still held out hope, but I was not nearly as optimistic as the American people were being led to be. Let's talk about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. What are you hearing from the people around you as to whether the withdrawal was the right move, whether Biden's made the right decision? Has there been any consensus that either of you have heard? I think from my my son's unit, 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, I think I think those images that we saw at the airport, and especially when he lost those members at the airport, I, th- I think they wanted more of a offensive posture as we pulled out. But I think we missed the point, veterans, non-veterans, is that nobody saw the collapse of this army happening this quick. Nobody. Nobody I heard of. Probably people now are saying they did, but I didn't hear it before. Most of the people I hear is, how come we didn't send more troops in to be more offensive-minded and fight? And I have to remind them that that means more people are going to die. It's not going to be one-sided. Americans will die if we go in there offensively, that will happen. But again, most of the people who talk about that and, and are encouraging that kind of action are not people sending their kids there. They're waving the flag from 10,000 miles away. I mean, it's still too raw and too too new for a postmortem. I mean, I'm, I'm having conversations with buddies who change their mind in the course of a conversation because it's all just just a lot to process when you've had 20 years of angst and, and losing friends and wondering who's going to deploy next and it's over. And in a matter of a week, <laughs> that's not enough time to to really come to grips with it. I, I would differ a little with Mike here on anticipating the speed of the collapse. I mean, it was fast, but the fact that we had one of the most heroic airlifts in history, while an enormous credit to those on the front lines who pulled it off, I think is a damning indictment of those who didn't plan ahead. We could have started this a long time ago with the sense of urgency that finally came to it in the final days. Did this, for either of you, convince you or not that America should stop trying to export American-style democracy with the proviso that, like, that means a lot of different things. But I'm curious as to whether that changed your views on that. Mike, uh, what do you think? Well, for me, yes, that changes it. And especially if we don't have any real plan to go in, what are we doing? We had a doctrine. It was called the Powell Doctrine, and it was born out of Desert Storm, where before we go in someplace, we have a plan to get out. What's the mission? How do we get out of there? And we executed it and almost immediately forgot it when we went into Somalia. So we've replicated these disasters over and over again with Vietnam, with Somalia, with Iraq, and now here with Afghanistan. So 
with the American people being completely checked out of these wars, we have these neocons who can continue to crank out these missions and run things the way they want to. And people who make big money off these wars and got rich off these wars, they can continue to do so unchecked because they're untouched by it. So that's really the crime of it. We checked out. Do you think that the separation we now have between people who serve and people who don't has contributed to that ability of folks to check out from it? Oh, absolutely. You know, like I use that World War II example, you were in it because we were in it, right? Some way, shape, or form, you you were touched. In Vietnam, if you were a parent with an 18-year-old son, you were paying attention. You were trying to get him into college, to Canada, or having him enlist. But you were you were involved. You couldn't check out. Now you can. And I don't know that I'm in favor of a draft, but I'm not against it either. Ken, what do you think? Has this era of war changed the idea of exporting democracy for you? Well, I think there's a huge difference between defending democracy where it is under threat. And I I still think we have to do that in places like Taiwan. But exporting it at the point of a gun, we should have learned our lesson by now. It doesn't usually work. It usually costs a lot of lives on both sides. In terms of the draft, I'm all for national service. I'm not sure I want to go back to a military draft, but I think it would make a difference if more of our decision makers, if our political leaders had real skin in the game. I remember being a student relatively older than my classmates at Yale Law School at the height of the war and just how disconnected everyone seemed from my experience, from the experience of of my buddies. There's a, a building at Yale called Memorial Hall, and the names basically stop at Vietnam the names etched in marble inside the hall of all of the Yale graduates who've given their lives. And after Vietnam, people stopped signing up. Ken, do you wish that more politicians had a military background? I don't know. What I most want to see is a degree of empathy that you can really only get by either having been downrange or having a loved one who's been sent. The burden that places on the families, not just in the moment, but often for years and years to come, is something you can't really theorize. It's something you can only really appreciate from experience. And when we make these decisions as a country about war and peace, I just wish more of the decision makers were internalizing the cost of that, the personal cost of that. It would be a heck of a lot easier if they had felt it themselves or had a family member who had felt it themselves. That, that is what I mean by skin in the game. I was watching the solemn news coverage of the caskets being brought back to Dover and remember being there myself in 2008. And I think that every time we lose a service member overseas in combat, all media should show that. Every media platform has to stop for an hour and watch these caskets come off the plane in an attempt to wake up America and let them know that there's a cost here. I also think if I was king of America, I would have an app that when we are starting to beat the war drums, 
you get to say, I'm for it or I'm against it. And if you press for it, somebody in your family, if not you, gets to deploy and or 10% of your income is going to go to help support that war that you are for. The American people just need to be more involved, more awake. Hi, Jane. My name is Brady Ryan in Friday Harbor. And the thing I've been arguing about my friends and family is whether the world is getting better or worse. And I know it's just such a general question, but it keeps coming up because a lot of people feel like the world is ending right now or has been a state of ending for the last year and a half. And, you know, it seems like there's lots of good news and lots of bad news, and it always has been. And this is even a worthwhile question. What are you arguing about? With your family, your friends, your frenemies? Tell me about the big debate you're having in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. And we might play an excerpt of it on a future episode. Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Something that really bothers me is that we've had four presidents who presided over this conflict over six terms. None of them served in a combat zone. And that's not to say they would have made better decisions because they had. But it seems as if veterans and service people are often used as a symbol or they're discussed or just become tropes. You know, when you hear people talking about how, like, Colin Kaepernick kneeling is against the troops or people using veterans in this way as a political cudgel, while veterans themselves aren't getting the resources they need at home, aren't getting the support they need. I'm curious as to your thoughts on how the veteran community is used as a cudgel sometimes, or if you think they are. Well, I absolutely think they are, uh, both socially and politically. And, And it affects all of us as veterans. I know my wife and I, who's an Army veteran, I I almost cringe when I see a a four-by-four pickup truck with an American flag flying from the back. Because that person, I feel, and I could be wrong sometimes, but often I'm not, has hijacked my patriotism. This is a guy who looks at me and doesn't have that same respect for me as what his picture of America is. And and it just makes me angry because I have that same flag flying out in front of my house right now. But more to your point, yes, it's maddening. You're seeing it right now with the Gold Star families are being rolled out and they're being used. And they'll be rolled out again for the next presidential election and used as that cudgel of what's right, what's wrong, whatever side's going to use them. And the veteran community has been 
manipulated so much and uh, it makes me mad infuriating me too and i'm so relieved but saddened to hear you talk about it that way mike because in all of my years of active duty service and i bet you would say the same i never imagined that seeing a crowd chant usa would make me feel ashamed but Nowadays, patriotism itself has become weaponized. And when a far-right protest or a Trump rally is shouting USA, they're not doing it to evoke any kind of patriotism that I recognize. They're doing it as, as a rebuke. And when patriotism is turned into a political weapon, it always ends badly. The vet experience is being misappropriated and vets are being turned against each other. An alarming number of veterans participated in the January 6th insurrection. I think it has to be said, though, that they were led there. They were following, in many cases, what they believed to be orders from their commander-in-chief. In my old job, I used to do a lot of work on extremism. And one thing that I think attracts folks to extremist organizations of any kind is a sense of isolation. And I, I know we talked a little bit about how the American public largely ignored this war. And I would argue also the media largely ignored this war. Is there something that we as civilians can do better? What do you think civilians have a responsibility to do to benefit veterans in a real way that isn't like putting a Punisher sticker on your truck or just thinking about veterans when it's election season. Simply be woke. (laughs) Be educated about what's going on in the world and our place in it and have an educated opinion about what we should do as Americans and where we should go. Right now, I feel that most Americans couldn't find Taiwan on a map. And there's a good chance we might go to war over there with China in the next 10 years. We have American troops in Syria. Most Americans don't know that. And I think we just need a more educated populace to encourage and vote in elected officials who are going to make decisions for them based on this knowledgeable background and experience. When it comes to the veteran experience, I would just encourage listeners to not be afraid of the veteran story, that they may be tentative about asking. I mean, it's such a reflex to thank a veteran for their service. It doesn't take that much more to say, tell me a little bit about your service. And I think one of the things that most people will come to realize about veterans is that their service isn't over. They very much want to re-engage in their communities and be productive members of their communities. I look forward to the day when people are are excited to have a veteran as a neighbor, as an employee, as a boss, and that begins with, with listening to those stories. I think the most important stories, though, are the ones that offer some wisdom and offer some critique, and veterans have a special moral authority when it comes to critiquing the nation they fought for. You brought up Colin Kaepernick. I I think it bears reminding folks that it was a veteran, Army Green Beret Nate Boyer, who convinced Colin to kneel as a sign of respect instead of sit on the bench during the national anthem. And it's that kind of display of respectful protest 
that I think is the highest form of patriotism. And that was inspired by a vet. Both of you have spoken out quite a bit about the insurrection on January 6th. So I wanted to ask you about it. It seems that there's clear bifurcation among veterans about January 6th. Can you help us understand what the divisions look like from within the vet community? Noting that there are thousands of veterans with thousands of opinions. Well, I think it's important to say that veterans really weren't significantly overrepresented on January 6th, but they pose a unique kind of threat because in military speak, they act as force multipliers. They bring a level of training and experience and discipline, and most importantly, cachet and credibility. They bring to this cause this veneer of patriotism. In terms of what happened, I think a lot of them took the word of their senators and the former president at face value. And they thought that an election had been stolen and that the only thing to do was to fight to take it back. I mean, this is the power of disinformation. And the real concern for me is that for a lot of vets I talk to, especially those who are studying these these movements, January 6th was by no means the crescendo. It was it was a dry run. Well, I think Ken's absolutely right in, in the misinformation, the disinformation, propaganda that we have. It's on such a huge level that people are are being drawn by this propaganda and just led. Veterans are just like anybody else. Just because you served overseas doesn't mean you understand what was going on in the bigger picture. So we can be led and pushed and and prodded and motivated just like anybody else, just like on the left, just like on the right, on the extremes, and act when we feel led and motivated to do so. There's another side to this. The overwhelming majority of veterans repurpose their skills and training for good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's something I I harp on, and I know Mike does as well. And there are incredible organizations out there that rechannel that energy, that patriotism, that desire to serve into good. And that should really be the story of this generation of veterans. Mike, when you are working with veterans in your therapy practice, do they feel heard? You know, when they're talking to other folks, do you think that just thanking them for their service, is that what they want? What are you hearing from them? Largely, no. It almost echoes the law enforcement officers that I work with. You know, it's the same. It's us versus them. They're against us, and they don't want to understand us, and they don't understand it. And it's it echoes on both sides. And so you kind of circle your wagons and don't tell any about your veteran or just pretend it didn't happen and seek out your veteran groups to be with. And oftentimes it's not even that. So now it's your own echo chamber in your head and you don't know where to go for help and you're afraid to go to the VA and you're just on an island by yourself, which allows you to be sucked into an extremist point of view who's pointing at you and saying, hey, you're by yourself, come with us. We're going to get you back to where you were and we're going to do something about what's going on. That's part of how we get here. I know you're a big advocate for therapy and you're a therapist yourself. I think that's so important. So many people are afraid to talk about seeking therapy and it's important for us to be honest about, you know, yeah, our brains need a coach sometimes. Can I ask, how long have you been working with a counselor? For me, it's been about uh, 
2017, but in 2014, I was suicidal. And it's a combination of 50 years of trauma as a child, as a firefighter, as a Marine, and then losing my son. I went to a program called Save a Warrior after that and helped me start putting things in context and led me on my road to where I'm at now. So I encourage, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, there's there's help for you out there. You just, just ask for it. It's out there. I have just a couple of final questions. First off, what does 9-11 mean to each of you now in 2021? Well, I'm trying to come to grips with that as we come to the anniversary. I've seen the clips and the trailers for the specials that are going to come on, and I still have a visceral reaction yeah. that I, I can't I'm like, watch. I, I don't want to. Nope. I, nope. I can't do it. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm grappling with that. And combined with what's going on in Afghanistan, my therapist is busy. Ken, what does it mean to you now, too? Yeah, I'm, I'm where Mike is. I have a hard time watching the the scenes from that day. I have to I have to remind myself though that you know that was that was the beginning of of twenty years of of, of trauma and and horror, um, and I fear for my country today because of how our reaction to that affected our politics. Is the 9-11 era over to either of you? Is it still ongoing? What would it mean for it to be over? I hope it is. I hope after the 20-year remembrances that we're going to have and all the TV specials that are going to come out, I hope it's over. And that's not to say forget about it. It's not that. But not living our lives in a foreign policy sense, with the direction that originated from the 9-11 attacks. I hope that's the case. What do you think, Ken? I don't think it's over. I think our geopolitics might have shifted. How so, do you think? I think we're definitely pivoting towards Asia. But our our foreign politics is is a reflection of domestic priorities. And our domestic politics shifted so fundamentally after 9-11, initially with that sense of common purpose, but that fear that was catalyzed on 9-11 has been repurposed to such terrifying effect by a major American political party. And instead of using fear as a way to unite Americans, it was very easily repurposed as a way to divide Americans and invent a path to minoritarian control. And I think one of the enduring legacies of 9-11 will be the weaponization of fear and patriotism in our politics. Mike, Ken, thank you both so much for your time. I really appreciate you both. Thank you, Jane. Thanks for having us. Master Sergeant Michael Washington is a former Marine and a licensed therapist for veterans and first responders. Kenneth Harbaugh is a former Navy pilot and an advocate for veterans who worked with Team Rubicon and The Mission Continues, and is the host of the podcast Burn the Boats and Warriors in Their Own Words. Ken and Mike suggested some resources for veterans and service people, and I want to share it with you here. 
I think the most important one to mention at the top is the Veterans Crisis Line. It's well supported and well staffed now. They will answer your call. You're not going to be put on hold. But then there's a, a whole long list of groups that have sprung up to help veterans with that transition. I know I put Team Rubicon at the top of that list, and boy, are they busy today. It's a disaster relief organization that redeploys veterans. And Mike and I have both been on Team Rubicon missions. They do great work. I say you know, the, the VA. I know the VA gets a bad rap, but it's a great organization run by great people. Yes, there's bad missteps that have happened, but I've gotten great service from the men and women at the VA. There's the vet centers, which is part of the VA, but it's the storefront neighborhood softer version of the VA. That's where I get my therapy. That's where I see my counselor. And, and it's just been phenomenal for me. That's been my experience. So I encourage veterans to try the VA. Don't listen to all the bad stories. Make it your own story. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elise Gutierrez, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Sarah Geis, with original music and mixing by Isaac Jones. Additional engineering by Carol Saburao. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, and audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks this week to Kristen Lynn. If you or someone you know are struggling with thoughts of self-harm, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741.